this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. Okay, so what are the numbers on your company's dashboard? My guess is you look at your company's revenue and profitability, which are two great metrics to track, but there are another eight key drivers of the value of your company that go well beyond just revenue and profitability that are the things that acquirers want to know about. Going and getting your value builder score will help you look at your business through the lens of an acquirer. It takes about 15 minutes to do. Go to valuebuilder.com to get your score. So really excited to have this next episode with Eric Van Horn, who started a Sola Salon franchise in an area. He built it up to 12 franchises and sold it. And it is a really, really fascinating story. Uh, listen out for what he calls the bad boy clause and how to structure an agreement with partners. He talks about the danger of using a multiple as a way to value your business and sort of clinging to a multiple as a valuation metric. He's a bigger believer in something he talks about being a dream number and identifying what your dream number is to sell your company. One of the gotchas in the sale of his business was assigning leases and getting landlord assent. So he does a great job describing the gotcha there and some of the things to look out for. He talks about TI dollars, and I'll let him describe what that is. And also, if you're getting money to build out your business, if you're borrowing money, watching out for prepayment penalties. So lots of great stuff in this episode with Eric Van Horn. Eric Van Horn, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thanks, John. Great to be here. So you're in the hair salon business. How does one get into the hair salon business? That's what I tell my three little girls that I'm in the salon business, and they think it's the coolest thing. But anybody who knows me knows I don't know anything about the salon business. <laughs> awesome. How did you get into it? So um, I've been in franchising since my mid-20s, and I bought and sold different franchises, and then I started to help people buy franchises. And so the reason I started to help people buy franchises is because I was always looking for my next deal. And so I found myself in a meeting in Scottsdale, Arizona in early 2014 with the founders of Solo Salon Studios. And they'd come from a different business and had success in that. And they founded uh, Solo Salons and I was fascinated uh, by their story. And so I found them at the bar, which is a good place to find these two guys. And I drilled them for about two hours, uh, question after question about their business and kept buying them drinks. And they just kept telling me more. And these guys were not salon guys at all, but they had stumbled into this business of salon suites, which is more of a real estate business than it is in the salon business. Meaning that what we would do is we would take about 7,000 square feet of retail space and we would uh, put a, a, about 40 individual suites in there and we would lease those out to salon professionals like hairstylists and estheticians and massage therapists and we would lease it to them 
on one to two year contracts and they would pay us on a weekly basis. So there's more in the real estate business than the salon business, but my daughters still think I know the salon business. <laughs> there you go. So in so you've been in and around franchises. So did you buy the physical kind of te- physical territory from the solo salon guys? Yeah. So um, they had basically just sold to friends and family. And whenever you're buying a franchise and they're early on, they are more generous in what they give you. And so I and my business partners, my soon to be business partners, we purchased the rights to develop all of Orange County, California. And so we purchased 12, uh, the rights to develop 12 stores there. And they couldn't come in and develop anymore until we reached our development plan. And so, yeah, we locked down that whole market. And so in your purchase agreement, did you contemplate what the exit options would be for you down the road? Yes and no. Um, We knew that there's leverage when you own an entire market. And so we we did go into it um, wanting to whenever you buy a market like that. It's offensive and defensive. So we wanted to grow to 12 locations if it, you know, if the plan was going to be successful and if it is what we wanted it to be. But we also knew if we were only going to get to, you know, five or six or seven locations, we wanted to block out as many people from coming to develop as possible. So it was an offensive and defensive move at the same time. And and later on, we ended up buying uh, three more territories just for that reason to block other people from coming in and maintaining exclusivity within the market. And I know that in some franchise agreements, there is a stipulation that says, look, I mean, you can't sell this without us approving who you're going to sell it to. Did that exist in the early franchise agreement? Yes, it it did. I think that's probably in pretty much every franchise agreement. Like you said, Um, there's kind of that that we can buy it out before anybody else clause is in there. And we I've never run into that issue um, in a franchise that I've been in. And this was no exception. They they we eventually sold it to the parent company and it was actually a private equity group that bought it. Um, But that was the intention all along. When we made that decision to sell it, that was the intention. Excellent. Who's the we here? You mentioned you and your partners. Maybe just, just give me a sense of who was the who were the equity holders in your Orange County business. So there is four of us total, and we each own twenty five percent of the business. And so when we got into it, um, we'd known each other from other franchises that we'd been a part of, and knew each other's strengths and weaknesses, and just who we were. And I needed partners at the time to come into something like this because these things were about a million dollars each to build out. And I didn't have, you know, $12 million in the bank to do that myself. And, and so uh, I brought uh, three other partners into the partnership group and that's what we started with. It was uh, Dan, Ryan, and um, John. And the money that you needed, you, it was to build out these locations. My understanding is they cost about a million dollars in leasehold improvements to get them into the structure that you want. Yeah, that's it. And at the time, SBA was loaning on on the build out. So we went to SBA for our first two. SBA being Small Business Administration. Yeah, exactly. And they were basically the backers of the loan. And and we went through the normal bank. They were backed by SBA. And um, we thought we were, you know, great. That's how we're going to do all of these things, because we got two loan, two loans approved at the same time, which isn't always easy. And so we had that and we figured, well, when it's time for uh, three, four, five, and six, we'll just do the same thing. 
And then uh, what happened is other salon suites uh, started to come into the market and SBA thought, well, these things are not really that active. The owners are not active in the business, which is true. I mean, we were not that active in the business and SBA likes to loan on more active uh, owner participants. And that was not the salon suite business. So SBA completely shut down lending in anything that was a salon suite. So the three of the four of you guys, you and your three partners, you're kind of the entrepreneurs, the money guys, but you're not in there, you know, swiping people's debit cards, making appointments for their next hair hair visit. That's not you're not operating the business. You're really. Yeah, that's uh, the three of uh, the four of us were were really came came from a place of. We want to work on the business, not in the business. Very much that E myth mindset, sure. And yeah. and all the business that that we've owned in the past were what we call semi absentee. So we were not very active. We wanted a business that we could put managers in place, and there and it wasn't employee heavy. And that's what made this one so attractive. And so the people part of the equation here is you, you have to recruit a full time manager of each location. I'm assuming is that right? Well, I'll dive into that. Um, that's what you would think. And some models are like that. But this one, the structure, and this was at our peak when we had 12 of them open. We had one director of operations. And then underneath uh, them, we had uh, three managers that would oversee uh, uh, four locations each. And then they had a full-time maintenance person and a full-time bookkeeper. So that there was about six employees um, at our peak. Got it. Because and whose job is it to recruit the individual stylist and convince them to set up their little you know store within a store, if you will, in a solo salon as opposed to you know one down the street? Yeah, that. So the marketing is the owners had uh, a lot of say in the marketing and how we did it, and the and it changed throughout the throughout the life of the business. Early on, it was you throw up a Craigslist ad for next to nothing, and they would answer that. We would show them, and they hadn't seen anything like it before, and they were sold. So it was really easy at that point in the early days. And then there more competition started coming in, and it wasn't as easy. And Craigslist just changed in in the way that it was being used. So it got to be a little bit more difficult. We started do more online advertising and this a lot of referral. So we wanted to make the environment inside the salon just like the best thing that that they've ever seen and the, and their business starts to increase and they start making more money, having more freedom and then they start referring more people. So a lot of it was referral at the at the end of the day we got a lot of referrals. Is there any consistency, you know, franchises generally, there's, you know, you go into a pick a franchise, McDonald's, you know, the cup size is always the same, regardless of whether you're in Arizona or you're in Toronto, it's always the same. Is there, what elements of the solo franchise were identical versus what was at the discretion of the individual stylist? So the stylists had a lot of individual discretion on what they could do because they're very creative people. And so once they're inside their suite, they could pretty much do anything that they wanted. Um, from our standpoint at Sola, there was you know a couple of different color schemes that we could choose from, a couple of different packages that we could choose from. So it did have a consistent look and feel throughout the throughout the country. And we wanted that specifically in Orange County. So they go to one, they're going to get the same feeling and look at another one. So that the stylist had a ton of discretion. We as franchisees did not have nearly as much. And how much you know, how did you make money? So I'm assuming you're making money off of the the fees that the individual stylists pay to rent their small 
kind of cubicle within the the, the the overall building? Is that, or are you also taking a percentage of whatever they sell? No, we kept it really simple and and they did not want to be micromanaged. That's, that's why they would move from their traditional salon to to Sola because they didn't, they want to get out of the drama. They did not want to be micromanaged and they wanted to keep more of the money that they're actually making. So it was a transition between either they have a choice to stay at their salon, which most of them hated or go and start their own salon, which most of them didn't have the stomach to do. So this was a nice middle ground for them to be owners of their own business. And so for that, we wanted to keep it real simple for them and we would give them the keys. We would paint it for them, the color that they wanted. And in return, they would pay us every month. So we're paying the landlord, you know, uh, $1, uh, you know, $1 and the stylists are paying us $2 and the gap is where we're making our profit. How was your accounts receivable? Because stylists love them or hate them that, you know, they're not known to be the best business people. And so I'm assuming you had serious AR issues where you had stylists not paying their bills. I mean, like, was that an issue for you guys? Well, we love them. We don't hate them. <laughs> so, <laughs> no, they, they were great. And I think it's the type of stylist that you bring in because you're right. They're not known for, um, for, for what you just mentioned. And so we, we were picky on who we brought in. We didn't let just anybody come in. We wanted to make sure they had a book of business and they're actually doing better. And I think that's one of the reasons stylists are used to paying every week. So believe it or not, we did not have many challenges with that. I think at our peak, maybe, uh, you know, a handful a week, which if you let it get out of control, then it becomes a challenge. But if you don't let it get out of control, you go and work with them and you set things up right away, then it doesn't become an issue. And it was never really a big issue for us. How did you and the three other partners um, navigate your partnership agreement how 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 was that structured and and how did it sort of play out for you guys well i'll give you the end of the story we're all still friends (laughs) so that's a good thing we all call each other up and some of us have been and are partners in other businesses currently so early on for the outcome to happen the way that it did you know all being friends we knew we had to have lots of uncomfortable conversations early on on what it would look like and so we hired a really good attorney and and who had done a lot of partnership agreements and some of them within solo salon studio uh, other partnerships that they had so we started to engage with him and over a lot of discussion a lot of money and a, a lot of rabbit trails we have a really robust operating agreement that, you know, has pretty much everything written into it. And we had to go back to it at different times for the partnership because we look at it and be like, okay, this is what the agreement says. And this is why we did it. And this is what we're going to follow, whether one of us likes it or doesn't like it at the time. That's what we set up early. Can you give me an example of an issue that came up that you had to refer back to the agreement? Even during the sale, the sell, uh, the sale of the business, we had to because at different times, different partners were ready to sell, and others were like, "I'm not so sure because we think it's a great business." And so, and we all kind of flip flopped around at different times, and that was one of the the things that I look back and I'm like, "I'm glad we have this in there because it basically, as long as three of the partners agreed on a sales price, you know, one partner couldn't hold up the entire sale for whatever reason." And so, um, 
um, that was one of the things that I look back and I was glad that we that we had in there and it proved to be helpful towards the end. And everybody was on the same page. But as you can imagine, selling a business with four different people um, at different stages in their lives and different reasons for wanting to sell and wanting to keep it and, and, and different goals that that could present a challenge. And we were able to work through that with the help of the operating agreement. So the operating agreement stipulated that three of the four of you had to agree to sell the business and and the other four would have to basically go along with it. Yes. Yeah. The other one that didn't the agree other. with it, they would have to, they would have to, you know, just go along with it. And, and I, and I'm glad it was written that way, whatever side I was on, because I wouldn't want to be the guy that was holding something up for three other people. And I wouldn't want to have to have that, you know, that, that on me. So the agreement spelled it out for us. So many guys and gals get into business with sort of the best intentions, three musketeers, all for one, one for all, uh, but then find out that they forgot to paper some of the the, the more detailed things. So what, what advice would you give uh, a new partnership group going into business for the first time? And I'm looking for something here, Eric, if you could think of something, something very specific that, of course, we're going to contemplate the major things, like what if one of us dies or one of us gets to say, but what are the, some of the, the, the kind of niggly little details that often get overlooked in a partnership agreement that you guys did a good job papering beyond just what happens in the sale? The one that comes to mind is the bad boy clause. Have you heard of that one? No. <laughs> So basically, if something happens to one of the partners, there's a felony and it and it impacts the business or they do something where they're not able to participate in the business like they could have in, you know, previous to that. So um, they are, you know, really when it comes, you know, they get thrown in jail or into prison and you can never reach them again. It triggers the bad boy clause, which triggers a sales price that is not the highest valuation. And so we we talked about that at different times and what would trigger different valuations of the business if someone needed to get out for whatever reason or someone wanted to get out or if someone did something stupid and we needed to get them out and so the valuation uh the valuation triggers that we use for those uh different purposes were were different and you know if someone just wants to get out of a business just because they're tired of it they're not getting full valuation for it and and it comes at a cost and and that might be a price reduction well absolutely a price reduction but also terms of the sale you're not going to get a bunch of cash right away so those were some of the things that i'd never heard about never thought about before but like especially like if you're in a franchise or you're doing something that like in a franchise if you do something wrong there's a felony or an impacts the franchise or they can terminate your agreement and if that happens to one of my partners in the in the franchise agreement gets terminated well there goes my cash flow there goes my my asset and 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 the rest of the partners can't have that because of someone's actions and so we started to talk about that and that was something that was you know unique i'd never heard about before but also you know if it ever did happen i'd be happy that we have it in there was there? I have this total. I I love California. To be, I'll just put my my cards on the table right out of the out of the gate. But I have this image of like four swashbuckling entrepreneurs driving around in convertibles, not wanting to do any of the work. And like, am I getting the image at all right? Were you guys sort of um, 
uh, you know, when you use the word like semi-autonomous business, I had this visualization of, of guys that don't want to get into the details, don't want to do the work. They just kind of want to be entrepreneurs. Was there any of that sort of vibe among the four partners where you had to kind of say, no, actually, you got to, you got to actually do some work. No, I th- <laughs> I think do you know what I'm all- sort of the stereotype I'm trying to, I have in my mind? No, I think you're absolutely right. That's how we all were. That's how we all are. And we knew it about each other. The night thing about all of us is if the work needs to get done, we're able to get it done. But the goal is not to work in the business. And so to that point early on, um, we were having to, to do work and we're like, holy cow, this is a lot more work than we signed up for because we're not signing up for a bunch of work. And and so what we did is we had some employees that we would that we had hired early on and they kind of got the job done, but they just weren't um, they weren't able to take uh, take a lot off of our plates as owners. And then we realized they were, you know, one person making 50, $60,000 a year was reporting to four different people. And we're like, this isn't working either. And, and so what we did is we said, we need to hire a district operation manager, hire someone that's really high caliber that can be the voice of the four owners to everybody else in the business, including the corporate office and be, uh, be our voice and be that person. And so we took that really serious and, and uh, a couple of the partners took that on and spent quite a bit of time to find that one person. And we found them the first time that our first hire was the person that we were looking for. And they really helped take the business from, I think it was three stores at the time to 12 stores when we when we sold it. And they drove the development. They were loved by the corporate office. We loved him. And, um, and so he knew he was hurting cats. I mean, with the four of us doing all kinds of other, other things, really smart, knew a lot, knew how to grow, knew what to do. But owning 25% of the business, it just didn't move the needle for for any of us. So that was probably the best thing that we did was hire our main man, Mirko. And how did you incentivize him to stay? Did he have shares or some sort of agreement that... We paid him a lot of money. And hindsight, we would have given him equity. Um, And because eventually what happened is he started his own solas. And so he we got the phone call and we're, so before that we, we knew he was just super smart and we would be on calls with the four of us partners. And we're like, Mirko's so smart. He's not going to, you know, he's not going to stay with us forever. Should we do something about it or just wait, wait another six months. And, and we never did anything about it. And we got the phone call. He's like, Hey, everyone, I need to talk to you. And he said, you know, I've loved working for you guys. I've learned a lot. I think, you know, this thing's awesome and so awesome. I'm going to buy, buy some myself. And I got some investors backing me up because they've seen what I've done for you in Orange County and um, herding a bunch of cats like you guys. So if I can do that, I can do it on my own. I just need the money. And he went out and raised money and has some very successful ones himself. And so we had conversations with him throughout that whole thing. Our initial reaction, at least my initial reaction was, this is horrible. You know, this is, he, you know, I, this is, we should have given him equity, although we should have done this, but you know, we were all mature enough and had mutual respect for each other. He stayed on, 
um, as kind of an advisor, a paid advisor to the very end. And he was critical during the, the selling point of it as well. So, um, you know, he's been, he has been fantastic through this whole process. But hindsight, if we would have given him equity in the business, and we talked about this uh, with him, he's like, yeah, guys, you should have given me equity and I would have taken it and we would have built more faster and sold it for even more money. And, and that's what we should have done a hundred percent. And it's changed the way I structure my businesses today. In what way? What do you do now? I have, um, three Pilates studios that I'm building out in, in Denver, Colorado. And I have a manager there who's paid a good amount of money, but she's also earning 5% equity. I have some weight loss clinics in, um, in other States. And, um, we brought on a 20%, uh, equity partner that they are the face of the business and they paid 10% and they earned, uh, earning 10% equity into the business. I have another, uh, partnership on some yoga studios that, um, it's a 50, 50 partnership and I'm there for advice, but, and money, but he's the face of the business. So definitely um, using equity, uh, whether it's partnership, whether it's manager, but it's to, um, it's to give ownership to the key people running the business. And what's the downside? I mean, I can, I can see tons of upside for sure. What, what's the downside of giving, um, you know, an owner, uh, like an operator, a little bit of equity? Um, what do you need to watch out for? Well, the downside for us at Sola or what we what we saw as the downside is we're just giving up cash flow and we're giving up a sales price at the end. But we didn't equate it to value and how much more value Mirko could have added to the asset versus, you know, if we had given him 10 percent equity. We would have earned probably 20 percent of value in the company by doing that. Um, and so it was kind of short sighted for us. But that was it. We're like we thought we were we would lose uh, lose uh, capital. I mean, uh, you know, capital injection into our pockets on, on a sale and then just just distributions. We didn't want to give up distributions. And I think the biggest thing now is what happens if they just don't turn out to be nearly as good as, as we think they are, you know, how can, how can I get out of that, out of a bad situation? And, um, I'm not the expert in that yet, but again, how I went about it with the partnership agreement and the operating agreement for the partners, having good attorneys, listening to a lot of people who are uh, farther ahead than me in this whole thing and taking advice from them, talking to the, talking to the uh, attorneys and then talking to having very open, honest conversations with the people that I'm doing business with, whether it's a, a, a true partner or it is that equity person. And, and I love having very open, honest conversations um, with people. And if they respond to that and they, they're the same way, then it's usually going to end pretty well. Awesome. So let's get into speaking of endings, the actual sale itself. So you guys are are building up. You've got twelve stores in various you know um, stages of of uh, development. What triggered you guys to want to sell? So we were at a crossroads. It was either so we built out our development plan, and we had we were nearing our twelve units that were going to be open, and we had purchased the rights to buy three more. And we did that because um, we wanted to protect the area, like we said earlier on in the podcast. And so it was, we knew that 
corporate Sola had their eye on the Orange County market because they sold it early on to us to develop. And there's a lot more room to develop than what we had developed. So we knew we were a target for, you know, growth for them. They wanted to get more people, more stores open up there. So it was either going to be us. We're going to have to double down or it was time to look at selling it. And, and was keeping was, it an option, Eric, like could, could, did your franchise agreement allow you to just basically write it out and, and keep it as a cash cow? hundred percent. We could have, um, we could have written it out and developed three more for a total of 15. The challenge is if, if other people started to come in, they would definitely feed off of what we had built. And if they start taking, um, if they start doing things to drive prices down or just cannibalizing stores, then our asset value would decrease and when, it might increase, but the, the chances we were not in full control of that. And so that was definitely a factor. Okay. When you say other people coming in, I'm assuming your franchise agreement with Sola uh, forbid anyone to come into that Orange County region that you don't, they, they couldn't have had somebody and a Sola franchise. No. So no. So we could have built out our 15. Once mm -hmm. we're done with our 15, we could either continue to build out a lot more faster, maybe uh, eight in two more years. And that would have been a lot to build out and taking on not a, leases that were not as favorable and, and just starting to cannibalize some of our own stores, or they could sell it to other franchisees who are dying to get into the Orange County market. And they would have built out, you know, let's just call it eight stores in two years. And that still would have had a negative impact. And we wouldn't, wouldn't have had the control that we had had for so long. That's helpful for sure. So, you know, head office, wants this kind of territory back or whatever. So that was kind of one influence. Was there a straw that broke the camel's back that actually accelerated your discussions to sell? No, we, well, it, they were, there was rumors of private equity coming in and buying, um, buying out some of the owners or the, or some of the owners shares of, so they could cash out a little bit at Sola corporate, Matt and Stratton, who are, you know, they are the founders of Sola, great guys and uh, friends to this day. Um, but we knew that they were you know, probably going to take some of the chips off the table themselves. And we did not know what that private equity group was. It, it was just an unknown. And so when there, whenever there's an unknown, it causes me to kind of reevaluate everything. And sometimes those unknowns are the greatest things that, that, that happen. And sometimes, you know, they're not so great. So we started to do this dance. Uh, with corporate because we didn't we we wanted them to know that we were still gung ho on developing which we were but we also wanted them to know that we were open to selling and so we just started talking to them about valuation how do you value these businesses and they would give a generic answer and we would come back with something else but at some point it I don't know how or when. I think it was at a, a, a dinner that we were all at in Austin, Texas, with some of the some of the higher ups at Sola and uh, a couple of the business partners, and we said, "Well, what would what would you guys want to buy it for?" And they were like, "Well, are you interested in selling?" Well, we might be at the prices, right? But we want to continue to develop more. So there was a dance that went on for a while, and then it came to we came to the conclusion that they were serious about buying, and we were. Serious about selling. 
And, you know, it was, it was interesting as well because they weren't desperate to buy and we were not desperate to sell. Even throughout the whole sales process, there were times when we said, do we even want to sell? Even to the, to the 11th hour, there were times when we said, screw it. Let's just keep it. It's a great business. We don't need to sell it. Let's not sell it. So when you guys are are back and forth on like, what do you think it's worth? What do you think it's worth? Like, are you throwing out a number like X million dollars or are you throwing out, well, we think it's worth, you know, five times earnings or, or one times revenue or whatever. Were you, were you throwing out a valuation number or an actual sort of offer? We were throwing out valuation numbers. We were in our past businesses, we were used to, you know, a certain multiple of EBITDA and that's how we were valuing it. And we had, you know, we knew our numbers very well. And so, you know, we thought, well, with a passive business, you know, six employees on a, on a business that's probably producing $6 million in revenue and, and very strong net profit margins, very strong, you know, what do we, what do we want to do? with that. And so we think it's, you know, it's a higher multiple because, you know, these things are kicking off a bunch of cash. We are, we, um, what else are we going to do? But the partners at this time, John, we're spending about two hours a week max on the business. And that's a two hour conference call with our team. That's it. And so very little owner involvement from us, you know, during the last few years. No wonder and, Mirko is going, okay, God, I wonder if he said this out. Oh, yeah. I'm, work, I'm working 80 hours of work here and for my salary. And you guys yeah, are jumping Mirko, on a call once a week. Well, maybe he's not as smart as we thought. Maybe he was just like pretty average because <laughs> he's not. I'm sure he's pretty smart. And, and, um, and so, and he learned from us. And so we, we were like, you know, we were thinking higher multiples, you know, we were like, this thing's worth a, you know, 10 X or 12 X and there. And so we were thinking about that, some of our just cash cows and cause we don't want to sell something that's, you know, producing a bunch of cash flow for, you know, three X or four X. And they're looking at some of our dogs and they're like, we don't want to pay hardly anything for this thing. Cause this thing's not to profitability yet or slowly, or, you know, we had two of them that were much slower growth. And two of the 12 rockets. units weren't performing as well as the others. Two of the 12 units weren't, weren't. Two, okay. One of them was not performing very well and it was a slow start. And the other one had been a slow start, but was performing, but not to the point where some of them were performing 10 times what the, the underperformers were doing. So when you express the, the profitability of this company, when you talk about EBITDA, are you talking about um, you know, operating EBITDA or, or kind of normalized or adjusted EBITDA? Like in theory, when all the stores are fully up and running, we should be you know, generating X amount of profit, or are you actually talking about what you are generating profit? We were talking, well, a little bit of both. We we're talking about what we are generating in profit, but that was some of the, the challenge because it was adjusted. You know, what's it going to look like in for a store that had just opened up in three months? You know, you, they're not, they're not full. And if you're not full, you know, 50% occupancy is kind of like that break even point. And so it, if you're not full and you're not going to be full for another six months or 12 months, you know, there's a run rate there. And so they started to look at that and they were like, well, you're not going to be full for, for two years at this rate. 
And we're thinking we're going to be full in three months. And, you know, the truth is somewhere in the middle. But that's where we were just going back and forth on that, on some of the old ones uh, that were not performing very good. Some of the new ones that didn't have a chance to perform. And then uh, and they didn't want to pay super high multiples on on the ones that were performing incredible because then it sets the standard for other people. And they wanted to have. Uh, you know, they wanted to be able to kind of have a standard multiple that they that they pay. So it became clear after, you know, a month or so of trying to come to an agreement on multiple that we were just getting nowhere because we we're coming at it from two completely different angles. And again, you know, we weren't desperate to sell and they weren't desperate to buy. So we ended up um, the partners. We just got together for a couple hours and said, what are we going to do? There's a price. You know, at the end of the day, a buyer is willing to, 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 to pay what a seller is willing to sell it for. What's our sales price? And we came up with it and we said, guys, here it is. And, and they, and, and that's when, you know, and we started out high and because it gave us some room for negotiation because we knew that they would want to negotiate, of course. And we settled on a price shortly after, shortly after that. And, and they worked it the way that they wanted to work it. And we worked it the way that we wanted to work it. How did you guys come up with the number? Basically, it was, is it worth it to sell at this point? Can we take this money that will hit our bank account on the day that we sell? And can we deploy that to make as much or more money that we're making today without a bunch of headache? What's the, so like, what's the, set up for the other three partners? I mean, are you guys all at similar life stages? You, you mentioned you got three young kids. I mean, is everybody sort of at the same stage in, of of life or is it disparate? Yeah, we are. You know, I mean, we look, look at, sometimes we're on the phone with each other and we just, we just laugh at how far we've all come because none of us came, you know, w- with, a, you know, this big boost of a bunch of money early on. We all are, we're entrepreneurs and we, we hustled and we, and we built and, and and over the years and we've done well and our lifestyle now, we just pinch ourselves. We're like, can you believe, can you believe this? One of my partners just accidentally bought a million dollar house the other day. And (laughs) and I I said, how does that accidentally do that? And, and, um, and he told me and sure enough, he kind of accidentally bought it. But, you know, we, we were just laughing because he would just um, a couple of days ago, he's like, hey, I was just looking back at like the first thousand dollar kind of deposit check that I wrote to buy my first franchise. And he's like, that was a big deal to me at this time. And now I accidentally bought a million dollar house. And he, what he's going to do is he'll sell it for a lot more money and make make a bunch of money off of it. But that's the kind of guy that he is. That's the kind of entrepreneurs that we are. So we're very much at the same stage in life. Um, my kids are four, six, and nine. Some I'm uh, probably the youngest uh, have the youngest kids out of all of us. But we're all you know in our early forties, uh, young families, and just really enjoy life and and enjoy the time with our families. You know, it's one of the things that um, that we've heard a lot about on this show is how important it is for partners to either be at the same kind of stage in life, uh, in particular around your finances. Because if you've got one partner who's trying to get their first foot on the first rung of the success ladder, and you've got another partner who's you know obviously wildly wealthy, it can cause very different motivations, especially around the boardroom table when you're looking at selling. 
Yeah, I can see that. Um, and and it, and there were some, you know, some of us wanted to continue to build because they thought this is the this is the horse that we're going to ride to make a, you know, uh, you know, do have a sale in in two years. That's two or three or four times what we had today. Other others were like, you know what, we've got an incredible opportunity to exit now. And one of the things is um, there are some um, other parts of the deal that are not related to price, but they're as important in, in many ways. And that's the lease assignments. The, if, if the landlord doesn't want to let you off the lease and, and you have to, to stay on as a personal guarantor to the new buyer and the new buyer doesn't have as deep pockets as you do, or they don't have uh, the ability to operate as well as you do, then that can come back to bite you. And so knowing that's private equity and, and, um, and they were able to indemnify us and things like that, that was really important in the decision-making process as well. And so I think that's, you know, some of the things that put all the partners on, on the same page and all of us, to your point, um, have bought, all of us have bought other businesses um, even before we sold it in, in, in anticipation of the sale. How much did the offer drop, if you will, from you mentioned you kind of started high in the dream number and then you, you kind of settled on a number less than what you started out at? How much how much did you guys have to drop on a percentage basis? Um, it was I think it was a couple million. It wasn't that it wasn't drastic. It wasn't a massive uh, amount, but I think it was a couple million that that it dropped and and i don't know i i I don't know that you can actually share the actual number my understanding though was it was a an eight-figure exit is is that kind of what what you're allowed to say if if you will yeah yeah i i uh sent an email like a like a good franchisee and said hey can i say it was an eight-figure exit and they said no problem um got it but so I'm, I'm imagining you're going to, you're, you're whiz with numbers and you might, you know, somehow figure out the exact sales price through your questioning. <laughs> I'm not that good. <laughs> uh, yeah. But I, I appreciate you sharing. So did you still have a lot of, ec- a lot of debt on the business? Cause you'd taken on some debt to build these things out. How did you stick handle the debt from the leasehold improvements? Yeah. So like I said, each one was probably a million dollars to build out on average. And some of these we were, when you when you go in and into a lease and you have a significant build out like this, and this is one of the great things about having a franchise like Sola, the landlords loved us because of Sola's track record of zero failures and just the 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 power behind the brand, and and so we got favorable lease terms and favorable tenant improvement dollars. And some of ours, um, on more than one occasion, we got fifty dollars in tenant improvement dollars back from the the landlord after we built out so fifty dollars on seven thousand square feet you know is a lot is a is a big check um to get back as a rebate yeah it's like 350 grand right i'm not that good with numbers so you got to help me <laughs> you almost figured out the sales price there you go <laughs> <laughs> no yeah i mean you get you know you get three hundred fifty thousand dollars back on on some of these and and it, it's it 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 changes 
the you know the starting point i mean you you don't have a million dollars into it by any means and and early on in 2014 we were getting a lot of those deals where we were getting 50 dollars in tenant improvement or ti dollars and that was normal to us and it wasn't normal to the the leasing agents working for us because we just we went in and assumed that and then the, we got the leasing agents to believe like that was normal and so pretty soon you know a lot of people are like how are you guys getting these ti's and we're like it's just normal. And, and we kept doing that until the landlords are like, Hey, the market's changed. You know, this is this, we're a little, we're in more control now. So we wish we had started um, per, um, um, signing more leases early on because we ended up paying a lot more money later on for some of the same leases that we could have uh, gotten much better deals on if we had signed earlier. Cause I guess you started in it, still when the great recession was starting to kind of we were still in the sort of depths of that. Yeah. Yeah. There was, there are still vacancies around and, mm. and there weren't people aggressively building like we were Just, and we were really bullish, but the landlords are still, you know, still feeling it. TI dollars, tenant improvement dollars. How does that work? So so are you, are you literally getting a check for $350,000 or is that just reducing your rent you owe over the life of the lease by that amount? It's a literal check. Really? And sometimes you have to fight for it. You know, in the lease, the landlords will say, yeah, you'll get a check, you know, one month after you, after you have CO or certificate of occupancy. So one month later you get your check. Well, that's when they say that you can apply for your check. And, you know, a lot of times it was three months later, we would get a physical check. Um, uh, for that 350 and they were happy to do it. We were happy to take it. And a lot of times the, the lenders, cause we got some different lenders later on. And so we would get a million dollar loan or, you know, $800,000 loan on the build out and put in, you know, a million dollars in that build out and get a check back to us, uh, for, for 350. Amazing. So with regards to the lenders, how does it work? And again, this is just my ignorance coming out. When you sell your company um, and you've still got like an SBA loan, as an example, do you have the rights to just pay that off with the proceeds of the sale or do you have to continue to honor the terms of the loan? Again, this is just total curiosity on my end. So I don't know what it's like for all loans, but we had a number of different different loans and um, and we refinanced some during the process as well. Um, all of our loans, with the exception of maybe one or two, there is zero prepayment penalty. So um, the banks were bummed that we that we sold because they got paid off, and some of them had like a one percent or two percent penalty for for early payment, and so that was just you know part of the part of the part of the deal. But we um, that's something that you know as I am into other businesses now, if I haven't you know thinking about selling before the loan terms up, that's definitely on my radar more than it was uh, when I first started Sola. The kind of pre, pre, you know, what'd you call it? Prepayment terms? Yeah. Prepayment penalty of, if, um, if we sell the business and, or refinance the loan, um, there's a penalty that we have to pay, but there is, it was nothing like, you know, if you're getting a loan, you're paying 6% interest that you owe all, all interest or something like that. We didn't have anything like that in any of our loans. It sounds like such a fantastic sale. If if there was one thing that you might do differently, if you could do it all over again, I know one thing would be to maybe give a few shares to Merco. What else might you do differently if you had the whole transaction to do over again? 
Well, it was pretty easy for me because my partner, Dan, um, did a lot of the heavy lifting towards the end because we needed to have one person kind of be the voice for the group. So um, if he was on the podcast, he'd probably have a completely different podcast <laughs> because he he was in he had to deal with some of the, um, you know, just just the, the wear and tear of negotiations. And so we didn't have to deal with a lot of that. If I had to change, you know, there's some things that I had to change. It would be uh, coming to that price agreement sooner than later, that kind of take it or leave it price. And and then the other thing that um, we did not know was going to be as difficult um, and it almost screwed up the deal multiple times was having landlord consent. So on deals like this, when you're dealing with big landlords, uh, they don't like to, some of them are just a pain. They just, they're just an absolute pain to deal with. And it's worse than getting a loan and having them remove you from the loan. Even if you're staying on as a personal guarantor, they'll run credit. They'll ask for updated financial statements. It's just absolutely insane how some of these landlords are. And it delayed the deal. And we were supposed to close months earlier, but part of it was landlord consents. They were not, um, they were not a, a hurry at all to uh to do anything and to, no, to sign there's nothing in it for them right no like they're motivation. not yeah right no it's only downside i have right. to yeah so that i would have started that way earlier um than, than we had i mean today as our i mean we've sold uh 11 of the 12 today is our our 12th one is is actually getting sold we got all the releases and i see that all that paperwork coming through today so we'll be getting another check next week for the 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 12th and final one but yeah that was that's been a pain man i i'm so indebted for you to educate me i you know i can't remember such a such a yeah, a comprehensive episode on on a retail business because so many of our businesses that we do for this show are kind of B two B businesses, service businesses. But you've really shone an amazing light on uh, some of the intricacies and ins and outs of of selling a sort of a storefront business. So I'm 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 just hugely grateful for you sharing the story, Eric. Oh, I'm glad to be on. This has been it's been a lot of fun being able to relive some of this. So how do people like what's next for you? How do, is there a website you want to send people to or like how can people reach out and introduce themselves to you if, if you if you're OK with them doing that? Is there a way for them to say hi? Yeah, 100 percent. So I have a, a website called I Love Franchising. Very simple. I love franchising dot com. And uh, on there, um, there's different ways to connect with me. If uh, you're looking at buying a franchise, I still help people do that. If you want to connect with, uh, there's links to like some private Facebook groups where, you know, franchisees, I've just, I've just created it. So franchisees can just learn and grow together and get, and get better. So um, find me on Facebook, LinkedIn, and um, I just, I love to help people. Eric Van Horn, I really appreciate you spending the time with me and um, thank you and best of luck with your new franchise. Hey, thanks a bunch, John. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at facebook.com slash built to sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R. 
I double L O W. Thanks for listening.